Welcome to Trinity. There we go. Welcome to Trinity. Uh, my name is Chris Colquitt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a real joy to be with you this morning and a privilege to open God's Word. If you are new here, we'd love to meet you. I'll be in the back after the service. Uh, please come say hi and introduce yourself. Um, we're so glad you're here this morning. We are working through a series really this whole year in the book of Genesis. And of late, we have been in the life of Abraham. And this week we come to Genesis chapter 17, which is another um, major moment in that life and in his covenant relationship with God. And so if you turn your Bibles to Genesis 17, you'll also find it printed there in your bulletin. We'll read verses 1 to 21. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born of you, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Father in heaven. What a joy and privilege it is to open your word, and what a gift that word is. Lord, we could not know you 
without you revealing yourselves to us. And we rejoice that you have done so savingly in this special revelation, in your gospel ultimately. And we pray now that the spirit who breathed out these words would be among us, that he would speak through me and in me. And Lord, that all of us might by his testimony call to you as our Father, Abba, in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who is our only hope, and in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so as we are in the life of Abraham, we come to the topic of circumcision. Now, circumcision is a difficult topic for us to discuss, not only because of the delicacy of the matter at hand, but more generally because our associations with it, to the extent we have them, are primarily through the New Testament as Christians. Most of us read our New Testament more than our Old, and if we read our New Testament, what we find is a lot of talk about circumcision, but most of it is in a negative key, because there's a controversy in the early church about whether or not Gentile believers, those who have not been circumcised, coming into the family of God, need to get circumcised. And so Paul goes to great lengths to say, no, do not need to be circumcised. And as a result, much of the language that we are familiar with in the New Testament seems to be negative. Circumcision is bad. In fact, it might even be uh, an enemy of the gospel. But here we are, thousands of years earlier in Genesis 17, and we see God himself inventing circumcision, or at least applying it to the people of Israel and saying this is not only significant, it's good and it's important and you need to do it. So what gives? How do we relate what we're seeing in Genesis 17 to what we receive in the New Testament? And this this basic question actually presents and underlies a deeper question that we come across when we look at the Old Testament, which is how does our obedience, which is going to be a major theme of today's sermon, how does our obedience to God relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ? In the New Testament, we're going to hear again and again that we're not saved by our works, and we're going to hear that again today in just a little while. But what about obedience? What about the call to obedience? Which clearly here in this text we're going to see is part of Abraham's call. In thinking about circumcision in Genesis 17, I hope and expect that we're going to see some clarity both on what circumcision is and why we don't do it anymore, but then more generally about how we relate to God and how our obedience relates to the gospel. So that's the setup. To explore this text, I want to I observe that there are two contextual matters that help us see where circumcision occurs in the life of Abraham. Two things are going on in this Genesis chapter 17 that are important. The first is that God is continuing to establish his covenant with Abraham, and here he is calling Abraham to obedience. So there's an obedience thing going on. And then at the end of our text, we see that in connection with circumcision and the institution of this rite for Abraham, God makes a very specific promise concerning Isaac, the birth of Isaac, a son through Sarah. And so we have obedience and we have an offspring. And in the middle, we have this call to circumcision. What I want us to think about is how both of those themes are going to help us understand circumcision. All right, so two points today if you're taking notes. Offspring, no, excuse me, obedience and offspring. Um, And with that, let's get after it. Okay, so, so obedience. The context in which 
Genesis 17 exists is the continuing unfolding of God's covenant relationship to Abraham and thus to his family. God has specially called Abraham and established this relationship with him. And he's made promises to him in Genesis 12 and Genesis 14 and Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, you recall, God makes the promise and then ratifies it by this this ceremony where the animals are split in two and God passes through the middle, saying, my promise stands, and if I don't do what I tell you I'm going to do, I will be split apart like these animals. May it be so to me. So we have this context of this covenant relationship being established. And if you remember from two weeks ago, remember when Abraham interacts with the king of Sodom? And Sodom's being really generous and saying, hey, keep all the stuff. I just want my people back. You keep all the stuff. And Abraham says no. And we, we talked about why does Abraham say no? And the answer is that what the king of Sodom was trying to do was to establish this relationship of covenant uh, provision on the case of Sodom and then loyalty for Abraham. That dynamic helps us understand what's happening here in Abraham's relationship to God. God's made all these promises, but here he says in verse 1, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. There's There's a call to obedience. Abraham now owes covenant loyalty to God. That's already been there. Genesis 12, 1, the first thing God says is get up and leave, go to a land I'm going to show you. And so obedience has been in the background, but we've seen so much about the promises of God. And yet here, God specifically calls Abraham to obedience. Y'all see that? Okay, circumcision arises in that context and is closely connected to it. And recognizing that context is going to help us understand what circumcision is all about. All right, three things I want us to see about circumcision and its meaning. And these are layers to the meaning of circumcision. First, it's an act of obedience. Second, it's a pledge of obedience. And third, it's a symbol or a picture of the fuller obedience to which Abraham is called. So it's an act, it's a pledge, and it's a symbol. And each of those things is important. The act piece is is the easiest to see. God says, do this. And he expects Abraham to do it. And so Abraham, in circumcising himself and his male family members and then continuing this practice into the future, is being obedient to God. It is a paradigmatic act of obedience of God to do what God says. But secondly, we see that this act is itself a pledge of obedience by Abraham to God. Meredith Klein, an Old Testament scholar uh, of the 20th century, is very helpful in drawing this out. As he studied ancient treaties, he recognized that in the same way that that, those split animals, right, pointed to the threat, God says, if I don't do this, may it be to me, right, split me apart. Circumcision has a similar meaning with respect to Abraham's own covenant pledge to God. There's a threat implicit in circumcision. There is a partial cutting here, right, in the act itself, but the threat is a complete cutting. And we see that in verse 14. Look at what is said. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, what's going to happen? He's going to be cut off from his people. 
And so there's a threat in the, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement of the curse that will come from failure to perform under this covenant. It's a pledge of Abraham's own faithfulness and loyalty to God. Third, though, it's a symbol of a fuller obedience. It's a symbol of a fuller obedience. Circumcision, interestingly, is not new to Israel in this moment. We have good evidence in archaeology that circumcision was practiced in other cultures, including around the people of Israel, though those in Canaan apparently did not, as we see as the, as the narrative unfolds. And so God's not inventing something new. He's taking something that's, that's known and applying it to his purposes. And one of the things that we see, both in the circumcision that Israel embraces here and more broadly, is that there's important symbolism around the removal, right? Something's being removed, and that removal relates to guilt and to sin and to uncleanness. And so both generally and specifically for the people of Israel, circumcision points to not just the act itself, but the reality of removing guilt, removing sin from their lives, and living in obedient dependence upon, to and faithfulness to God. Y'all see that? Okay, so it's the act itself. It's this pledge with a threat associated. And, and then it points to this fuller thing. Now, as we move beyond Genesis chapter 17, we see that circumcision is going to continue to be part of the lives of Israel. And they're going to misunderstand in various ways how this thing works. And God, in his revelation, is going to clarify for them what this is really about. And I want to look at two errors and two clarifications. They're the same thing. Two errors and clarifications that come up as we continue out in the scope of redemptive history. The first is the error would be that it's just number one. This is just an act of obedience. You remember that? So it's just, if I do it, I'm good. If I don't, I'm in trouble. And in the lives of Israel, God is insistent, very early actually, to say, no, this is a symbol of something much deeper. The obedience of the act of circumcision points to a much deeper obedience, a much fuller obedience. You can see this in a few passages. In Leviticus 26, God provocatively describes Israel in its rebellion and its stubbornness as uncircumcised. This is Leviticus 26, 41. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity. And so though they are physically circumcised, we have this concept now of a circumcised heart. That that obedience which is symbolized needs to take root deeper. Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses commands the people of Israel saying, Circumcise therefore the foreskins of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So this first error is that they would see this as a simple act of obedience, just external, and if we're good there, we're good to go. And Moses and then later the prophets are very insistent that's not the case. Circumcision physically points to circumcision inwardly. Paul picks this up in Romans chapter 2. Now, we need to remind ourselves about what's going on in the New Testament. You have Gentile believers, so those who are Greek, non-Jews, who are starting to believe in Jesus and become part of the people of God. 
And the church is full of them plus Jewish believers who had grown up in the Jewish religion, had been circumcised, and are now following Jesus. And what do we do together? In particular, do these Gentile believers need to be circumcised? They don't, they have not been faithful to the act of circumcision. Do they need to be? Okay, that's the context in which the New Testament is describing circumcision. And Paul wants us to see, first in Genesis, or sorry, in Romans chapter 2, that the outward thing is not the real significant thing. I'm not going to read all of this, but he says in Romans 2.25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So Paul's saying you might be circumcised, but if your heart is uncircumcised, you're uncircumcised. You're not part of the people of God. Goes on to say in verse 28, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision is a matter of the heart. Y'all see that? That's, that's error number one is to see it as this external act. If you get it done, you're good. The reality, the clarification is this thing. It's pointing to something deeper, that number three thing we talked about, right? So it's not just an act. It points to a fuller obedience. All right, second error and clarification, also from Paul, also in Romans, is that obedience to the law, including obedience to receive circumcision, is not the grounds of your salvation. It's not the cause of you finding the gift of blessing. The righteousness that you have is not from your own circumcision, but from Christ. And to do that, um, Paul goes to the life of Abraham. He actually goes to these very chapters that we've been reading. And in Romans chapter 4, he says this, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. That's, that's Genesis 15, which we were in a few, a few weeks ago. That Abraham believed, so God promises, Abraham believes, and it's counted to him as righteousness. So he's righteous. Paul says, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Circumcision comes here, right? Obedience comes after, after righteousness, after faith, after promise. And that's really important for Paul to lay out. He wants us to understand that the obedience of law, the obedience to the law, including in circumcision, even the circumcision of the heart thing, is not the ground by which Abraham received the blessing. God starts with promise. Faith is the response. Obedience follows from that. Y'all tracking? That's, an, that's, that's, that's the New Testament, okay? Um, okay, let's, I got, I got a quote, but I'm going to save it for a second. So we have these two errors and these two clarifications. On the one hand, we have people saying, get circumcised, you're good to go. Don't need to really do much beyond that, right? On the other hand, you've got folks saying, your obedience to the law, including your circumcision, is the grounds on which God receives you as righteous and blessed, right? Those seem like two very different things. This guy's really into the law and, and, and putting a lot of pressure on himself. This guy's just like, I'm cool, right? Whatever. 
I'm going to be stubborn and all these things, but I'm circumcised, so it's all good. Here's what I want us to see. They're actually doing the same thing. And they're interrelated to one another. Imagine, uh, well, I was trying to do this in terms of a volume analogy, and it didn't quite work in the first service, so I tried to fix it, and now I'm just confessing to you that I tried to fix it. I'm not sure it's still going to work. This guy's trying to turn down the requirements of the law to make things okay, right? This, this guy's trying to turn up the, the burden on himself to fulfill that law. So burden going up, requirements going down. What I want us to see is that if you start here with requirements going down, you can very quickly come over here and be a burden going up person, right? Because if the law is just getting circumcised and then you're good to go, then it's really easy for you to say, hey, I'm good to go and it's on the basis of my own works. Y'all see that? Flip that, right? If you're over here and you think that your obedience to the law is what's going to save you and secure you before God, guess what's going to happen? You're going to turn down the volume on the requirements of the law because it's not very comfortable to be there if the law is way up here. You got to get it way down here. I just got to do this one or two things. Y'all see that? So these two things actually are the same thing just expressed in different people and different personalities. We're going to end up with low requirements of the law and way high requirements on us to be saved. Y'all see that? Or burden on us to fulfill that low law. See that mismatch? Okay. The gospel flips the script entirely, okay? What does Jesus do when he comes? What does Jesus do when he comes to the, to the Pharisees? They've got the volume way down here. They think it's up. He's like, no, 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 no. Right, turn it up, crank it up. You think you're righteous? No, right? You follow. You've made up a bunch of rules, but do you? What about your heart? Right? He's doing circumcision of the heart stuff, saying you are. It's way, way the heck higher than that ceiling, right? But then at the same time, he comes over here, and both in his message and his work, what does he do? He hits the mute button on the requirement that we actually fulfill that law to be blessed. Okay. Somewhat surprisingly, that version, right, Christ has done it all, the law is very demanding, is actually the recipe for us to grow in obedience. If you want to be more like Christ, if you want to grow in obedience, that's the way to do it. Illustration may be helpful. Choir, love y'all. They may not even be in here this time because they sometimes go to the first one and they're awesome. Okay, raise your hand if you would like to be in the choir. Trick question. Okay, uh, raise your hand if you would never like to be in the choir. You could never imagine yourself standing up here. Okay, you know why? Because these guys and gals, amazing, they, they actually sing loud. They're mic- there's microphones. And so they sing with confidence the, vo- the notes that are before them. That's what it means to be in a choir. It's the amazing thing about it. Y'all and me sitting out there, we sing exactly the right volume so that someone knows we're singing, but they cannot hear our very poor vocal offerings, right? Are you with me? Now, for all of us who aren't in the choir, Jesus loves them too, but for all of us who aren't in the choir, there is a time in your life, most of us, whether it's in the car or in the shower, when you will hear a song... And you will sing like you're in the choir, right? 
you'll belt it out. And it doesn't matter that you can't hit the high note. It doesn't matter that you're incredibly off tune, right? Why? Because no one's listening. And in the joy of that song that you want to sing along to, you just belt it out, even though you're not very good at it. That's a picture of what Jesus turning this way up and this way down does for us, okay? It puts us in our car, listening to the gospel of Jesus, right? Which tells us both what it looks like to live a life of love and obedience to God and tells us that we don't have to do that to be saved. And if the pressure's down and the volume, and this thing's way up here, we're just going to start singing. And that's what it looks like to follow the Lord. That's what it looks like for us to walk in obedience. And that's what it looked like for Abraham to walk in obedience. Your hardest Voss, who's a great theologian, who I'll quote from time to time, um, says this, and I, I, I'll, it's a great quote. It's always hard to read quotes or listen to quotes, so I'll explain it. God does not begin with working upon the inward psychical states of the patriarchs. So God doesn't start with Abraham's heart. That's what he's saying. As though they were subject for reform, an unbiblical attitude which is unfortunately characteristic of too much of modern religion. Instead, he begins with giving them promises. The keynote is not what Abraham has to do for God, but what God will do for Abraham. Then in response to this, the subjective frame of mind that changes the inner and outer life is cultivated. What Voss is saying is that God understands how we work and the way that he calls us to obedience is by making promises, by making us righteous, and then by calling us to obedience out of those things. He starts with the objective saying, you are justified, and then he goes to work making us sanctified in us. If we get that order out of place, we're in trouble, all right? Second point. This will feel like a, 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 a weird change for a second, but hopefully we'll back shortly. So the first context is obedience. Circumcision has to do with obedience. The second context, though, is this promise of Isaac's birth. What you may not have fully picked up before now is that God hasn't actually promised that Sarah would have a son until chapter 17, which explains why they shouldn't have done it, but explains why they at least had the thought, well, maybe Sarah's not going to be the mama back in in the last chapter. But here, God says, Sarah's going to have a son. Sarah's going to have a son, and his name's going to be Isaac, and my blessing is going to go through him. And in the middle of that occurs this teaching on circumcision. The drama of the entire rest of Genesis and really the rest of the Bible is going to be about this offspring, right? About the line of Abraham and where it will lead. We see, even in this text, an echo of the future and the past where God promises both to Abraham and to Sarah that a king will come from Sarah, right? Kings will come from Sarah. And that draws us back to Genesis 3.15, where there's a promise that a son of Eve will be the obedient one who will crush the head of the serpent. And it points us forward to the messianic hope that first goes through the kingship and then to some figure who will be a son of David down the road. That's fun. Go listen to Bill Wilder talk about that some other time. Actually, you've missed it. He's done teaching that part of the Sunday school class. Um, The seed, the offspring, it matters. And what I want us to to see here 
is that it's not for nothing that that promise of an offspring is connected to circumcision. Okay? And it's not for nothing that the imagery and the meaning and even the practice of circumcision connects to Israel's line. Right? can see that in the place of circumcision's application on the human body, right? in the male reproductive organ. We can see that in the fact that when babies are born, they're circumcised. And so in, in thinking about Israel's line, it's always in the context of circumcision. Y'all tracking? Circumcision, which is this act of obedience, this pledge of obedience, and this symbol of fuller obedience... What we see then is that this king, this promised son, this line of Abraham is going to be tied up in this obedience. And we see this explicitly in Colossians chapter 2. We read this as the, the assurance for pardon to get some extra scripture in your bulletin. So turn there for a second if, you want, if you're not in Colossians 2. In him, the whole fullness of Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of of all rule and authority. In him also you, will, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Guys, the reason that circumcision ends with Christ is simply this, that circumcision was entirely designed to point forward to Christ. That the offspring of Abraham would be tied to covenant loyalty and there would be a king who would come who would fulfill the law that was pledged in the act of circumcision. The offspring of Eve, the ultimate king, and his faithful covenantal work completed the sign of circumcision. Christ himself was circumcised, which is significant to the New Testament's understanding of his ministry. He was born under the law, under this sign of covenant loyalty, and he fulfilled it. His life was a fulfillment of the oath of circumcision. And not only that, it wasn't just an outward symbol, but indeed the matter of the heart, that very thing that it's pointing to in its fullness. And in taking that pledge of obedience and receiving the sign of circumcision, that oath of God to fulfill this covenant, faithfulness to him, he also received the sign of the curse. And then he didn't just receive the partial sign of the curse, but he got the whole thing. Look again at, look again at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. What, what was Christ's ministry on the cross? He was cut off from his people. Isaiah 53 says that explicitly. Christ comes and bears the curse that is shown in the, in the act of circumcision fully. He completes it. And having forgiven our sins and restored us to God, he sent his spirit to renew and restore our hearts. And this is the really... No, this is all beautiful. I don't want to say this is the most beautiful, but it's really cool, guys. Because remember in Deuteronomy chapter 10... We read that a second ago. Moses says, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Right? It's not just external. It's got to be internal. Well, then in Genesis chapter, or Deuteronomy chapter 30, after Moses predicts the exile, because they're, gonna, they're not going to do that, right? Um, 
he also says God's going to bring you back. And listen to this, Deuteronomy 35 and following. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Do you hear the Abrahamic promise there? And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Our ultimate promise, the ultimate circumcision that Christ provides and accomplishes is a circumcision of your own heart by the power of the Spirit. We are reformed into obedience. We are remade. We are reborn by the work of Jesus, by the circumcision of Christ. And here again, at the very end, God is the actor. He is the promiser. And receiving and resting in those promises, which are typified and accomplished, not typified, they're accomplished in Christ himself. We then get to go live our lives of obedience, singing our hearts out to the song that he sang and that we are secure in. We feel in our very flesh the call to obedience and we feel the threat. But Christ comes and he answers it and says, the threat has been taken care of. I have fulfilled the call. Now follow me. This is the way of life. Hallelujah. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this year word. We thank you that you speak to us in our deep sense, both that we need to be obedient and something's at stake. You don't leave us unanswered, but you speak good words of promise. And in Christ Jesus, we see those promises fulfilled. We see those promises said yes and amen. He is our circumcision. We are in him. Oh, would you convince us of these realities and help us to walk in the joy and freedom that we have in him, following in his way as Abraham did. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.